Let me pray for us before we begin this uh, morning or afternoon. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that was just read. We pray that your spirit would help illuminate our minds as well as our hearts to what your spirit may be prompting us to do. And that this truth and this word would be embodied in our lives so that others may come to know Christ as he dwells in us and as we make him known. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you heard of the Greek myth about Sisyphus? Sisyphus was a king of Corinth that had tricked the Greek gods one too many times. To punish him, Zeus sent him to Hades and gave him one task. He had to roll this boulder up a very steep hill. But there was a catch. Before that boulder got to the top, it would roll all the way back to the bottom. So Sisyphus would have to roll that stone up that hill again and again and again. And he would have to do this for all eternity. This myth highlights the futility associated with work. Once we finish one task, one assignment, one job, there's always another assignment, another task, another job waiting for us. And the futility of work oftentimes is frustrating to a point that we just want to give up before even starting. That the futility of work prompts us and tempts us to give up before even beginning. I mean, why dust our homes if dust is going to return the next day? Why wash our dishes if there's going to be more dishes the next day to wash? Why write computer code when once you finish one code, there's another code to write? Why treat patients who are sick and you give them a great treatment, they get well, but they're going to get sick again? Why complete a homework assignment when there's going to be another homework assignment to do? When we think about the futility of work, it feels like we're trapped in this hamster wheel that goes round and round and round. It makes us feel in the morning the desire just to hit that snooze button and pull those covers back over our heads and go back to sleep. That the futility of work tempts us to give up before we even begin <clears throat> any type of work that we do. So how do we deal with those feelings of futility associated with work? What should we do when work feels like an exercise in futility? What should we do to overcome those feelings? Would God will turn our attention to the sluggard found in the pages of Proverbs, that God would want us to learn from the sluggard. Solomon has a run-in with this sluggard that's recorded for us in Proverbs chapter 24. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me, Proverbs 24. This particular run-in, this story, is found specifically in the latter half of this chapter, in verse 30 to 34. Now, from the story of the sluggard, we learn this. How do we deal with the futility of work? And what are two things that happen once we deal with the futility of work? So what do we do to deal with the futility of work? And then what are two effects of once we deal 
with the futility of work. So how do we deal with the futility of work? Well, we work with God's purpose. We work as God has designed it, has purposed it, intended it, that God had a plan for work for us and that we are to work with God's purpose. Now, Solomon here in these verses observes an unfruitful vineyard that is owned by an unmotivated sluggard. That there is this vineyard that's not producing grapes or fruit because the owner of it is a sluggard and is unmotivated. Look with me at these verses. Uh, Verse 30, it says this, I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Now, maybe Solomon had a day where he went out to Israel to observe the kingdom. And as he was walking down that beaten path, he could see the wheat fields of Malachi. He could see the fig orchards of Amos. He could see the cattle of Aaron roaming the fields. And then he would come upon a vineyard, a vineyard owned by Nabal. Now, Nabal didn't always own this vineyard. His father, Noah, owned it before him. But Noah had just recently passed away. And so Nabal inherited this vineyard. Now, before Noah died, he taught Nabal all the tricks of the trade that he needed to know to cultivate this vineyard. He taught Nabal how to cultivate the ground, to remove the weeds, know how to prune the vine so that it could bear more fruit, when to gather the fruit, when to crush it, how to vent it. And with every passing lesson for Nabal, it just went in one ear and out the other. Solomon and everyone knew Nabal was a sluggard. Now, what does it mean to be a sluggard? Well, the word sluggard means slow. Now, when I say slow, I don't mean that he's slow in the sense that he's careful, that he's slowly inspecting every single vine, making sure that there are no pests, that there's any obstacle that prevents that vine from going, he would remove it slowly. No, 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 that's not what slow means when in reference to the sluggard. The sluggard is slow to get up in the morning. He is slow to get dressed. He's slow to go to the field because he is unmotivated to work. In fact, Solomon parallels that word sluggard with this phrase, lacking sense, that the sluggard lacks sense. Now, that phrase literally can mean lacking heart, and heart can have a whole variety of meanings. It could mean the organ, it could mean conscience, but in this particular context, heart means will that the sluggard lack the will to work. The sluggard would be the one who says, why should I go work and weed the field when the weeds will grow back the next day? Why should I fix the wall to keep out the vermin when the vermin keep on finding new ways to steal my grapes? The sluggard lacks the willpower to even go to work. And what happens when the sluggard doesn't work on the vineyard? The vineyard then becomes unfruitful. It's unable to bear any fruit. 
Solomon describes the scene as this in verse 31. Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. That these thorns and nettles, oftentimes when used in the Old Testament, are used in connection with judgment. That these things are not good. And not only is the ground covered with weeds, but that stone wall that was supposed to keep out humans as well as animals from taking the fruit of the vine, that wall was now broken down. And animals and human beings can come and go as they pleased. The vineyard was unfruitful. The sluggard lacked motivation to work because all he saw was futility. Now, the sluggard is not an example to follow. Solomon provides this story of the sluggard, not so that we can imitate him, but he is someone we should not imitate at all. He is an example not to follow. And why do I say that? Because Solomon instructed his readers actually to work earlier in this chapter. In verse 27, it says this, prepare your work outside, Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. That Solomon was encouraging people like Naboth, go work, go prepare the field, take out the weeds, cultivate the vines, prune them, harvest the grapes, make raisins, make wine, vent them. People like Naboth, as well as the readers of this proverb, should go out and work. But why does Solomon instruct people to work If work just continues on and on, it's because God has tasked humanity to work, that he tasked human beings in his image to actually work. God tasked Adam, the first human being, to work. Just as God was able to create order out of chaos by uttering the words, let there be light, God put Adam into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and to bring order. In fact, Adam's first job in ordering everything was as a zoologist by naming all the different animals that he saw. Then we also see that God had tasked Israel to also work, that they were to work for six days and then rest on the seventh, that for six days they were to gather their manna in the wilderness and to work, but then to rest on the seventh, to imitate him. And by imitating God, Israel would image God. And God also tasked Jesus Christ with a very specific task, with a very specific job. That God the Father sent Jesus the Son to die on a cross for the sins of humanity and rise three days later. That even his son had a job to do. And likewise, God has tasked us as Christians, as those who follow Christ, to work and to work as unto the Lord, that whatever work we do, we work for God's pleasure, that when we exercise our gifts and our abilities in our workplaces, we please him. So we ought to work with God's purpose. So what happens when we work with God's purpose? Well, first, we glorify God, that God gave you interest, that God gave you different abilities and skills and different training as a medical professional, as an engineer, as a lawyer, as a teacher, even as a student, that you are to 
exercise all those skills and abilities to fulfill the work that God has put before you because you are his workmanship created for a specific task, for a specific calling in your workplace. And when you exercise those gifts and those interests, you bring glory to God and God is well pleased. And when we work with God's purpose, we also realize that work is a demonstration of love for neighbor. That when we work, we work for the benefit of those around us. Can you imagine if waste management in Houston ceased to exist? Your garbage at home would pile up, the stench would be unbearable, and you would get all these uninvited critters going through your trash each day. It would be disorder. Can you imagine if there were no grocery store workers? When you go to the grocery store, you wouldn't be able to find your favorite cereal, to find your favorite coffee. You wouldn't be able to find your favorite produce because it wouldn't be stocked. Can you imagine if there was no one to install your internet? No more YouTube, no more Netflix, no more Disney+, Plus, no more Facebook, no more Instagram, no more TikTok. It'd be disorder. It'd be chaos. And oftentimes the work that we do, we realize that is to benefit other people. It's to benefit the community and it helps others. That's what happens when we work with God's purpose. So what is the first effect or the first result when we work with God's purpose? When we work with God's purpose, we work and we avoid procrastination. That we work with God's purpose to avoid procrastination, that we avoid delaying our work, putting it off, waiting until later, that we do our work faithfully and now. That when we work with God's purpose, we avoid procrastination. Now, Solomon observed that the slugger avoided work by procrastinating. Look with me at verse 32. It says this, Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Now, Solomon may have gone home after he saw Nabal's vineyard, and he kept on thinking about that scene. He couldn't get it out of his mind that even when he was eating his lunch or his dinner, he was thinking about that vineyard. When officials came in to give a daily report on the kingdom, Solomon thought about it. That's what it means when it says, and I considered it, that he set it upon his heart to figure out what does it mean. And then in the middle of the night, he gets it, that he receives instruction. And he writes this down in verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest. Did you notice in verse 33 that little is repeated three times? And this idea of sleep tends to intensify with every word from sleep, to slumber, to folding of hands. And Solomon realizes that the reason why Nabal has such an unfruitful vineyard is because he's procrastinating in his work, that he's putting off and he's delaying it. Why? So that he could just sleep. That sleep has become now a means to escape his work, to avoid doing what is required. Now, for many of us, it may not be sleep that we do to delay our work and to put it off. For some of us, it may be trying to finish a few more 
minutes of that video game so that we say, Mom, just give me a few more minutes. I just need to get to this save point, beat this boss, get to this part of the game, and then I'll go back to my work. Or for those of you who may be working on projects at home, it may be, I'm just going to take a break and watch this YouTube clip. And then another one pops up that piques your interest. And you watch that one. And before you know it, 15 minutes pass that you can have been using to work. It may not be YouTube. It could be a flick of a finger to read your Facebook feed or even another flick to view another Instagram photo. That oftentimes we find ourselves procrastinating and avoiding work. It happens a little bit at a time. Now, the question I want to ask us is, why do we feel the temptation to procrastinate? Why is it that we procrastinate? It's because I think there's a me-first mentality that we have to consider. Now, what do I mean by a me-first mentality? Well, let me give you two examples. First, I think we procrastinate because we believe that time is ours to control. That if we put off a task, there will always be time tomorrow or the day after tomorrow to be able to get it done. That time is something that we control, that we manipulate, that we plan for. And I think we realize that when we think this way, it leads us into trouble. So for example, Josephine and I months ago knew that we were running low on liquid hand soap. And so I thought to myself, oh, I'll just get it later. And so every time I went to Costco, for some reason, I forgot to get liquid hand soap. And then the coronavirus hit. Now, every time I go to Costco, there is no liquid hand soap. I had procrastinated. Now, before everyone sends me an email or text saying that they have liquid hand soap to provide for us, I want to reassure everyone that Josephine and I have been washing our hands regularly and that we have plenty of bar soap in our home that we use now instead of liquid hand soap. But then we also realize that we put off a task not realizing that even when we put it off, the next day there's going to be more tasks to do, that there's going to be more things to complete, more things to accomplish, that we put off one email not realizing the next day we're going to get 20 more. We put off one homework assignment not realizing the next day the teacher is going to assign another one. We finish one project and our manager puts another project on our desk, that we believe that we can control our circumstances, as well as our time so that we can finish these tasks later. But we fail to realize that there's only one time lord. It's not you or me, and that's God. Only God is able to control time and to get what he needs to get done according to his timing and his planning. So we have to realize, as Jason preached a few weeks ago, that ultimately, time is not in our control, that plans need to be held loosely, so we need to be faithful with the time that God has given us. So what's the second example of this me-first mentality? Well, I think the second example is this, that we procrastinate because we believe that our comfort trumps others, that we take care of ourselves first before we think about the tasks that actually care for others. Well, think about how sometimes we neglect washing the dishes because we think that, well, we can do it later, and what's more important is me getting through this show. I need to finish this new Netflix show, or I need to finish researching this new article that I've been so interested in reading, and then you put off the dishes. 
not realizing that someone may need a dish later. Or you may put off doing your part in a group assignment because you're busy finishing watching a video or finishing reading a book that you're putting off your part in that group assignment, not realizing that other group members are probably worried, when are you going to get that part done? Or there may be a coworker who's emailing you for help and you're putting him off because last week when you emailed him and you needed his help, he didn't respond. So you're giving him a taste of his own medicine by putting him off, not realizing that this could also jeopardize the whole company. That we procrastinate and put things off because we believe that our comfort, our interests, trumps others. So what are we supposed to do with this temptation to procrastinate? Well, we need to resist it. And we resist the temptation to procrastinate by thinking about the gospel first. I mean, think about Jesus's daily faithfulness, that each day he accomplished and did what God assigned him to do. Even though there are always more people to heal, there's always more demons to exercise, there's always more sermons to preach, more parables to tell, and yet every single day, Jesus accomplished what God intended him to do. And think about also how Jesus thought about others first, that he didn't think about himself. I mean, imagine at the Garden of Gethsemane that as he was about to go to the cross, that he said to the Lord, you know, if he said to God the Father, you know, I don't think these people are worth it. I don't think this is worth my time, my effort, and my strength. We would all be doomed. But instead, even though Jesus asked, is there another way? And there wasn't. He went willingly to the cross to die for our sins. He thought of others first. And so we also need to be faithful with the time that is given us by receiving each day as a gift. Seeing it as a day and time that God has given us to steward. As Master Wu Gui says, the past is history. The future is a mystery. But today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. That we are to spend the time that God has given us to accomplish those tasks that God has assigned us. And that we are to see that our work is a service to others, that we see it as an opportunity to serve people around us, whether it be washing those dishes so that, so that someone can have a cup to make coffee or tea, or to be able to pour their cereal in a clean bowl, that you finish your part in your group assignment so that your group members would feel less anxious and that they can submit it on time. You answer that email from that difficult coworker because you see them as a person and you don't value them for the utility and you entrust that judgment to God. That we see work as service, as a mean to serve others. Let's talk about the second effect of what it means to work with God's purpose. So we work with God's purpose to avoid procrastination, but we also work with God's purpose to avoid losing it all. That we work with God's purpose to avoid procrastination and losing it all. Now, what do I mean by losing it all? Well, let's look at what Solomon wrote. Well, Solomon observed that the sluggard would lose everything if he continued to avoid work. Look with me at verse 34. It says this, And poverty will come upon you like a robber, 
and want like an armed man. That if Nabal did not improve and actually work on his vineyard, that vineyard would eventually be taken away, either by people, by vermin, by time, and by the earth. And Solomon describes this poverty will come on like a robber. Now, when we think about poverty, we think about people who have little. But the question is, why do they have little? Because the word here, poverty, does not refer to those who are poor because of situations outside of their control, such as natural disasters like flooding, or because there is an oppressive government that's taking advantage of the poor. The word poverty here refers to those who are impoverished because they do not want to work. Now, Solomon describes this poverty coming upon a person like a robber. Now, this word robber can be also translated or rendered the word vagrant, a drifter, a person who travels from place to place asking for things. And it's to highlight the suddenness by which poverty would come upon a person. And then Solomon describes want like an armed man, a person who would assault you. That want will hit you hard in the stomach when it comes. That a person who fails to work and is unable to have food to eat will feel hunger assault him like an armed person. That when he's unable to work and to buy clothes, that the cold will eat at his skin. Or even when he's not able to work and unable to have shelter, that the rain will drown him. It will assault him suddenly and quickly. Now, what does it mean for us then? Well, avoiding work ultimately will catch up to you. That if you fail to do your work, you fail to complete your projects, you may be called into your manager's office for a reprimand. And if you continue to avoid doing your work, you'll be called into your manager's office again, and you may lose your job. If you continue to neglect doing your assignments, whether it be your homework, your reading, you're going to get a reprimand from the teacher. And if you continue doing it, you're going to fail the class. I mean, you could possibly lose what you are working for because you're avoiding work. Now, loss can also ambush you quickly and suddenly. It can come upon you with such surprise and such quickness. So, for example, if you neglect maybe balancing your checkbook and realizing what you have within your checking account, and you write a check to your electrical company, not realizing you probably don't have enough funds there, and you go to turn on that switch next time, and the power tends to come on, the light fails, and the water fails to heat, it'll come upon you suddenly, quickly, like an ambush. Maybe you forget to pay your credit card bills, and the next time you go to the grocery store, and the cashier asks you to pay, you take out your credit card and you swipe, denied. You swipe again, denied. You use another credit card, denied. And it comes upon you like an assault, like a surprise. Or maybe it's when you have an assignment to read perhaps the first act of Macbeth for English class. And you put it off because your friends invite you to watch a film in the middle of the night. So you watch the film. It's too late already, so you're too tired. You put away the assignment, and you think, I'll get to it later. And then you wake up the next morning, you log into class, and your English teacher says, pop quiz. And you're like, oh, no. 
And so you look at that quiz with a blank stare, thinking to yourself, man, I should have read the first act of Macbeth last night rather than watching this film. It comes upon you suddenly, quickly, and like an assault. But for those of us who are believers, we realize that in those times of loss, that because God loves us, he uses those times of loss to teach us because God disciplines those he loves. And that God uses these times of loss to instruct us to repent of our avoidance of work so that we would embrace work as God designed it, to work with purpose. That we realize that there is forgiveness in Christ and that there are second chances. Because years ago, he came to this earth, leaving heaven, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, both past, present, and future. And that there's forgiveness and that there are second chances. So how do we deal with that futility in regards to work, those feelings of frustration, the fact that work continues over and over and over again? Well, work with God's purpose to avoid procrastination and losing it all. Liz Ryan wrote an article in Forbes magazine challenging companies to help employees connect with greater mission, with a greater mission, rather than having happy employees. So let me read this article to you, which I thought was really interesting. It says this, let's imagine a person completely immersed in his or her work. I will use the greatest violin maker in the world as an example. Now, I don't know who makes the greatest violins in the world, but let's imagine an Italian violin maker named Franco. And Franco has a studio where there are 20 to 25 apprentices and journeymen violin makers who work alongside him, making the most exquisite violins in the world. Is Franco happy? Well, he's alternately ecstatic, frustrated, transported, confused, exhausted, and lost in the zone. He and his work are inextricable from one another. You can't separate the two. No one would say about Franco or his employees, they're happy. Instead, people in Franco's town would say, those guys live and breathe violins, and people around the world rejoice. Can the same be said of us who are God's people? That people will say of us that those guys live and breathe to serve others. That those guys live and breathe to learn. Those guys live and breathe to treat their patients. Those guys live and breathe to research and to learn new things to benefit others. That those guys live and breathe to work with God's purpose as God designed them. And people around them rejoice. Would people say that of us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you work each and every day, 24-7, 365. Because if you cease to work, then all creation would cease to exist. And we thank you for how you have made us in your image to work as well. That you have given us interests, abilities, gifts, and to be able to use those in our workplaces and in our schools. And we ask that your spirit would help us to work with your purpose, that we would be able to overcome those few feelings of futility 
of frustration when it comes to our work, and that we would carry it out to avoid procrastination as well as losing it all, and that we would do all these things to the glory and honor of our God and for the benefit of our neighbor. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.